Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Big girls don't cry yai when they're listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, Perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a raw-boned and wicked good podcast. I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook group. Just put in Stick to Wrestling in the search and ask to be added. You will be added. You can also follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who is Don Morocco hitting Moondog Maine in the face with a chair. One thing I want to thank everybody for the success of this show. It started off a little bit slow. I remember being on the phone with Brian last summer or fall of uh, 2018. I'm like, Brian, how's it going? Like, you know, how many people are listening to this? What's the ratings or whatever like? And Brian pauses and he says, well, the ratings are respectable. And I'm like, oh, my, I'm already like, oh, my God, that's like a bad word. Especially when you consider like respectable with a qualifier. But now, two and a half years later, or more than that, God, we are up to number 29 on Chartable. And you might say, oh, 29, big deal. Hey, I'm in the ring with Ric Flair, Steve Austin, uh, Chris Jericho, Jim Ross. Compared to the other podcasts out there, we're doing really well, and I want to thank everybody. Speaking of the other podcast out there, I should be beaten with a belt for not having this guy on a lot sooner. Barry Rose, welcome aboard. <laughs> I appreciate that. Wait, when you say Barry Rose, shouldn't you say popular guest co-host for this week, Barry Rose? I actually saved that for the write-up of the show. Okay. Yeah, and I tease you about that. I don't. I don't know if you listen to ours, but I tease you about that every single week. So that's why I demand that, John, in front of my name. Popular, sure. <laughs> the only place anywhere Barry's ever been popular. But anyway, Barry, thanks for having yes. you beyond. Before we get rolling, please tell us a little bit about the podcast you you are on every single week. Yeah, absolutely too. So look, we are we are we're essentially brothers because we are on the same Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. We also have the same producer, Scam Likely, Sweet Lou, Chef Lou Kippelman. So we are like family and of course we've all known each other for about thirty or thirty five years. So yep. we are family. But we I have been a part of uh breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry for the last over four years, uh, I like to say I'm the lesser of the two talents of uh, between myself and Jeff Baldrin. I don't know uh, about it's, that. It's a lot of fun. Look, well, you know, it's a, and a lot of it is tongue in cheek, but uh, but I actually have a lot of respect. Jeff really, you know, he really puts forth uh, a lot of effort, and he sounds great. And uh, this has been his baby from the get go. But we've been doing a podcast. It's over four years. We're two hundred and fifteen somewhere in that neighborhood. We have never missed a week, and we do like to joke about that, John. There are few things I have accomplished in this world that I have never missed a week on or, you know, a day on, whatever it is, 215 episodes without ever missing. We don't just stick to wrestling. That's another thing that we like to joke about. We will talk about anything under the sun. 
and really the genesis of this entire podcast that we're doing is uh, these are extensions of phone calls between Jeff and myself. For years, Jeff and I would call and talk to each other, and we would just bullshit. We would talk about movies, food, uh, our personal lives, whatever it was. And, you know, there was such a camaraderie. Jeff is obviously, you know, a super close friend of mine. And uh, we just said, you know what, why don't we kind of take this to the next level? And that's how I view it. Every week we get on, we record, and I just have a lot of fun. I never view it as work, you know, with quotation marks around it so uh, I love doing it but I'm happy that you've had me on and I think I've been on at least once before possibly twice and of course the obligatory I was on when you had a co-host Sean Goodwin whatever happened to this guy John I knew you were gonna bring that (laughs) up <laughs> I I don't know what happened with Sean. We had a scheduling conflict. He said that he could only do stick to wrestling or he could not do weekends. Lou and I could only do weekends at that point. This is June of 2020. And I was like, you know, I just had to tell him, Sean, you know, you, you, we, you can't be on the show because you can't do weekends. And Sean just said, OK. And he did an exit show and he was fine on it. And then he just kicked me the hell out of his life. <laughs> he kicked all of us out of his life. Yeah, which is too bad because he's a really good guy. It was a great guy, and, and he used to. So I've been uh, I've been running the CWF Archives Facebook group for eight years, and Sean would show up every so often. He would pull out a factoid from like 1948, and you would just sit there and go, "Holy shit!" Like he really knew about the historical aspect of wrestling. But you could be honest: is he with Jimmy Hoffa in some landfill in New Jersey <laughs> at this point? Is he gone? <laughs> Tell me the truth, John. <laughs> he, he might be, for all I know. I mean, the guy <laughs> disappeared. And, you know, Sean, if you're hearing this, we'd, we'd all love to have you back. Barry, we were talking a little bit about your show, Breaking Kayfabe. And I know I was at least getting some consideration for the role that you eventually wound up in. And I got to tell you, the, the right choice was made because you and Jeff really do have the camaraderie. You can talk about things that, like, I would just suck at talking about, and it's a great podcast. And like I said, <laughs> whoever made that choice made the right choice because it, it's just it's better that with you than it would have ever been with me. And that's not me just blowing smoke. Yeah, and that is that is a true compliment, and I really am grateful uh, and, and appreciative that you would say that as well. Uh, again, a lot of it is, uh, you know, Jeff and I are just, I can say things, and Jeff knows, like, halfway through what I'm saying, what I'm going to say, and how I'm going to finish. And Jeff and I had a conversation earlier today, and it got heated it was me, actually. I got to say, Jeff was very calm, and I was I was getting heated. And Jeff calls me twenty minutes later and goes, "I hate when we bicker, like like an old married couple." <laughs> and I said, "Jeff, we weren't bickering at all. It was it was hysterical in the sense in that you know, first off, look, uh, only a real friend would say that to you. First off, which I really appreciate. But I, I told him, I said, Jeff, we weren't bickering at all. I wasn't mad at you. I was venting about the situation, which you have nothing to do about, but." But that that is like our friendship. And, uh, you know, I, you know, as we get older, John, and I think we're all in the same age grouping at this point. I'm 58. Jeff is 60. I, you might be the baby of the group, right? You might be a little bit I'm younger. I'm the younger brother. I'm 56 and I feel cryptic. Yeah, exactly. Imagine how we feel. 
But as we get older, you know, these friendships, uh, again, you know, we've all known each other for decades at this point. These friendships really do mean a lot. And uh, it's never lost on me that, you know, the fact that I get to do a podcast and just spout off all my bullshit on a weekly basis with somebody that I consider one of my closest, if not my closest friends, I'm the lucky guy, right? I agree. And you know what? It, it's scary. I mean, we we lose people. You know, we lost Mark Nolte. We lost Scott Williams. We lost Clawmaster. I mean, it's, you know, it nothing lasts forever. And I'm, I'm glad you guys are still around. And I, you know, kind of still grieve the loss of some of the people I've lost in the wrestling community we're talking about. I could not agree more with you with that. Clawmaster, if you go back to my Facebook group, which is CWF Archives, the Championship Wrestling from Archives Facebook group, Clawmaster was the one that I started the pick-a-card thread with. And the pick-a-card thread essentially, on a daily basis, will list every CWF card for that date. And Clawmaster, the late Jim Zordani, was the guy. He was the guy that you know gave me so much of this information. I did a lot of research after, but without him... It absolutely wouldn't. And Scott Williams, I mean, Scott Williams was one of my closest friends in wrestling. We grew apart. You know, he had he had so much going on. And Scott Williams, I mean, here was a guy, when you stop and think, incredible writer, uh, an incredible journalist, goes out as an adult with children, goes to law school, yep. and graduates and becomes a lawyer. I mean, that's, you know, that's if I get off the couch, John, this is like a miracle, right? This guy, you know, he had a son that was a special needs child. He was so passionate, so driven, and he was a great fucking guy, too. You know, that was. was the other aspect. Scott Williams was a great guy when he died. And I had just spoken to him maybe a month earlier, and I reached out to him and I said, Scott, I, I want to take excerpts of like the Terry Funk book and I want to put it in my Facebook group and stuff like that. And he was like, please, you have my full blessing to do this. Just a tremendous guy, and sometimes life isn't fair, John, and I think in the case of Scott Williams, really wasn't fair. It was awful. Scott was good enough to give me an acknowledgement at the beginning of the Terry Funk book, which I kind of didn't deserve. I talked to him on the phone a couple of times, and yeah, just overall, I mean, more than a couple of times, but like a couple of times regarding the Terry Funk book. Yeah, I mean, Scott would have been on this show. Jim would have been on this show. Mark would have been on this show. It, it, yeah, well, we'll enjoy it while we still can. Barry, you are in Florida. You just mentioned that to me. And for some reason, that puts me in a very strange mood to play golf, which is weird because I haven't played golf in like <laughs> 10 years. But you've got me wanting to play golf now. And I'm in New Hampshire. It's November. Ain't no golf happening. Ain't no golf happening. I left. Uh, so I should say I was down here for 10 days. We did our CWF Legends Fan Fest, and I'm sure that everybody listening knows what that is because I certainly promote the hell out of that on my podcast as well as all over social media. But we do a very small, intimate fan fest down here. We had a lot of our brother shippers came down. So I was down here for 10 days. I drove back to Philly. I always drive back and forth because I bring my third child, who is my dog, Ozzy. And uh, we never fly, and we always drive together. He loves the long car rides. He does? Wow. Yeah, oh, he loves long car rides. And we always stop in the same cities. Like, we stop in this town right outside of Savannah. We stay overnight. We go out to eat. We go to the same restaurant. He can sit outside. And then as we drive back, we always hit Fayetteville. And I can always catch, I catch up with uh, Chris and Christine Spiker, who are great friends of mine, and we'll always go to restaurants out there. But 
I was in Florida for 10 days. I drove back to Philly. I stayed in Philly for five days and then drove right back to Florida, and I'm here for eight days. And when I left, John, it was 29 degrees. I had to warm up my car for 15, 20 minutes, get it good and going, warmed up. I got down here yesterday. It was 81 degrees. So you wanted to play golf by me telling you I'm in Florida. What do I do? I walk one block in, uh, I guess, to the right of me, and I'm at the beach. I'm literally, it's like a beach house. And uh, that is where I spent five hours today. I took my dog, Ozzy, to the dog park. We walked the entire, this is essentially an island, too. It's a barrier island right outside of Tampa. And I, Sweet. Yeah, just, it, this, is, this is it, John. This is where I want to be. And uh, I'm great at golf. There is a mini golf two blocks over. And I'm actually going to go play mini golf, I think, tomorrow or Wednesday. So, yeah, very excited about that. I played golf a lot in my 20s, and then I, I kind of stopped doing it because, I mean, it was giving me stomach cancer. If I die early, it's because I played golf because that is a <laughs> frustrating game. And I'm like, okay, I'm paying like $75 of 1989 money to get really annoyed, so I stopped doing it at some point. The last two shows, we talked about Thanksgiving 1986, Starcade 86. I want to thank Steve Crawford for doing such a great job on that. And Barry and I are going to continue talking about Thanksgiving 1986. Starcade was not the only show out there. And by the way, this comes out after Thanksgiving. I hope everyone had a great holiday. And Barry, let's start by talking about the World Class Championship Wrestling Show held on November 27th, 1986. They drew 6,000 people for the show, which really surprised me because World Class was going through a bad time towards the end of 1986. Yeah, and you can look at first, before we even, John, what were you doing on Thanksgiving 1986? Uh, Let me think. I know I went to a party afterwards and we watched the Blues Brothers on VHS uh, while we were all kind of tipsy. We did that probably for like 10 years in a row. Uh, probably just hanging out, watching football with the fam before that. Yeah, so I was uh, dating a young lady. We dated from 85 to 88, so we would have been together during this holiday. I don't remember if we were at my parents' house or her parents' house. I'm going to think it was my parents' house, so... Uh, rest in peace to both of my parents. Uh, they were always great during Thanksgiving. This is, as I look at this card, too, and I, I'm glad you sent me this card, not a good card. And when you say drawing 6,000, of course, they had been drawing great numbers just a couple of years earlier. But when you look at this card, I mean, this is this is a rough card. And the main event on this card, which really should tell you, lights out match, Kevin Von Erich versus Al Madrill. This is the funny thing, and we talk about, and I'm going to use what I call the Charlie Cook comparison with this. So Charlie Cook catches a lot of shit. Charlie Cook was the Florida heavyweight champion in 1981, and he catches a lot of flack from people. You know, Charlie Cook, terrible wrestler, et cetera, et cetera, which was not true. Charlie Cook was actually a decent wrestler, but Charlie Cook was put in a position as the Florida champion in main events when he would have been much better suited to being middle of the card, fourth match, somewhere in that neighborhood. That's kind of like Al Madrill to me as well. Al Madrill had a place on the card, but it wasn't in the main event working a lights out match. So I look at this and this is a, I mean, you know, Kevin Von Erich versus Black Bart 
Fritz von Erich, I think he was 140, actually, when this this card took place. He only looked it. Yeah, exactly, and moved it. Moved like, you know, he was like he and Bronco racing each other with a snail. <laughs> snail won. <laughs> right. <laughs> snail and the turtle, they both won. Master G, God bless George Wells, you know, right. Uh, and, you know, it's Mike von Erich on the card. Mike apparently working twice. So if you, you know, and again, rest in peace, Mike von Erich. Great guy, I'm sure. Lovely human being. But as a professional wrestler, a lot of challenges there. This is a really tough, tough card. A bright spot here, Crusher Yurkov, who we knew would become Bam Bam Bigelow. There was a guy on the second match working as a draw. I get it. Still young in his career. I believe still a rookie at this stage. But that's a guy I would have pushed, you know. But this is a tough card. And 6,000, I'm with you on that because based off of what you see here, this has got 2,000, maybe 3,000 if you're lucky written all over it. I do wonder, John, if this card had taken place any other date other than right around the holiday if they would have drawn this big. Well, I have a lot to say. First of all, Barry and his endless girlfriend stories, number one. <laughs> nice, nice. Very nice. We had a show maybe 10 shows ago, and I named it kind of after Charlie Cook. I think the name of it was something like Eddie Graham and Dusty Rhodes did not sandbag Ric Flair. Ric Flair in his book talked about how they put the Florida title on Charlie Cook in order to, again, sandbag his title reign. And I, I don't think that was true at all. I got Florida wrestling on cable in 1981 during the Charlie Cook run as the Florida heavyweight champion. He was never the top guy. But they occasionally put that belt on not the top guy, and he fit right in. It was fine. I, I never saw the problem. No, he wasn't a great wrestler, even though he he legit played football at Grambling. They tried to push him as, oh, yeah, and he played for the Pittsburgh Steelers for seven years. No, he got a tryout at camp, and he wasn't that bad. I, I didn't think. He wasn't, John. And if I can just chime in on that. Yeah. When, when Ric Flair speaks... The world revolves around Ric Flair, right? <laughs> I think I think we all agree that Ric Flair believes everything. That That is so false, and I read that in his autobiography. Charlie Cook got the push because Dory Funk Jr. was a huge Charlie Cook fan. There were certain guys that when Dory got the book, he was going to give a push to. Tommy Gilbert's a great example. Tommy Gilbert worked in Amarillo as Johnny Starr. Dory Funk got the book in Florida and brought Tommy Gilbert in and gave Tommy Gilbert a huge push. So there were the, this whole cachet of guys that were considered Dory Jr. guys, and Charlie Cook was one of them. Had nothing to do with trying to sandbag Ric Flair. And I will tell you this, Eddie Graham, for all of his faults, was all about providing the best product that was going to draw, that was going to bring people into an arena to spend money. Dusty, on the other hand, absolutely, I could see Dusty trying to sandbag somebody. Wouldn't have happened with Eddie Graham. So uh, I apologize, John. Please continue. No, that was that was good. I appreciate that. Wrestling on Thanksgiving Day, if they had a major show at the Boston Garden, as big a wrestling fan as I am and I was, I don't know if I would have gone to it. It just isn't the tradition around here, but obviously... It's the tradition in other areas. I mean, Barry, can you see yourself, a younger version of yourself, going to wrestling on Thanksgiving night? Theoretically, no. Uh, absolutely not. If I was 
younger. Uh, if I was younger, I'd be doing a lot more, John. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be recording a podcast right now. I'd be out you're right, doing other <laughs> things. But if I was younger, and let me second reference with a girlfriend, John. Oh, no. Again? Again? <laughs> again. And she wanted to go, and we had had dinner with my parents at 4 o'clock, so we're done at maybe 5.30. Then maybe, but I, I don't think I ever had this, like, massive desire to go see wrestling on a holiday, right? Like, why why would you really when there's every other day out of the year? You know, it doesn't have to be on Mother. There was an ROH show in Philadelphia, I'll say five years ago, and I bought tickets for it for my son and myself. ROH, yeah, it was ROH. And I presented that to my wife. I am since divorced, by the way, of course, as I tell you this story. I presented this to my wife, who did not react too well that I wanted to go on Mother's Day to see a wrestling show and take her firstborn with me. You know, you've got all these other days. Why do you have to do a show on Mother's Day or Thanksgiving or Christmas? Do it the day before. Do it the day after. Whatever. But why on a major holiday? That just always seems kind of weird to me. When he was alive, Yankees owner George Steinbrenner would go nuts if the Yankees were scheduled at home on Mother's Day for that exact reason. You know, people wouldn't show up for the game. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it was the same thing with me. Um, I remember the first Survivor Series. You know, I wanted to stay home and watch wrestling, and my girlfriend at the time was not very happy about it. But what are you going to do? It was the first Survivor <laughs> Series. And, and but, but I get it. Thanksgiving, you know, when you're younger— the Wednesday before and Thanksgiving night, let's be real, it, it's a party night. It has been a party night as long as, I've, as, long as Thanksgiving's been around. Oh, as yeah. far as I know, the night before has been a party night. If you have a kid in college or you're in college, you come home, you reunite with all your high school friends. I have a good friend in Pennsylvania right now. And her kids just came back, and they're in their late 20s. But even they're getting together with their friends the night before. It's tradition. So why would you want to even have a big card the night before Thanksgiving? Crazy to me. Same here. It's been a party holiday for me Thanksgiving night since I was in seventh grade. Talking about the world-class show, I think the real main event here, believe it or not, was Fritz von Erich in that Iron Claw challenge against Abdullah the Butcher, which... I've seen it on TV. It's every bit as bad as it sounds like. And you're right, Fritz von Erich, you know, he was in, I want to say, his mid-50s at this point. He looked like he was in his mid-80s. I mean, he was slow, and he would finish third in a race with a pregnant lady. Yeah, he would. Absolutely with that, too. You know, you look at the card, and I got to tell you, I do think the best match on this entire card was probably Mark Youngblood in the Grappler. And then, which was the third match of the night. And then the opener, Scott Casey against Killer Brooks, was probably the second best match of the night. Just a lot of it, you know, Abdullah versus Tony Atlas. And you just, you kind of know what you're going to get with that one, too. Dingo Warrior against Master G in a chain match. I mean, the level of pain, John, for that match alone. I, I'm in pain thinking about it, and it's 35 years ago, if I'm correct, 34 years ago, 35 years ago. Horrific. Just This is a bad card, but I guess this is the way it, the way it was going in world class. The, the, the bloom was off the rose, as my grandmother used to say. Yeah, Kerry Von Erich was out with an injury, and he wasn't coming back anytime soon. 1987 for world class felt like we're just keeping the store open until Kerry gets back. We're just stalling for time. 
I think the best match on this card might have been, might have been, Kevin Von Erich against Black Bart for the World Class Championship. Black Bart was a good worker, and if it's Thanksgiving night in front of seven, uh, in front of 6,000 people, maybe Kevin Von Erich would have showed up, but Kevin, I mean, right around the end of 85, early 86, I mean, he went south in a hurry. He did. You know, you're, that's a, you make a good point, too. Bart gets shit on a lot, and, you know, he, he was what he was. You weren't going to get, you know, any more than what you already knew of Black Bart. But yet, here was a guy that was entertaining in the ring and did have decent matches. And I used to like his uh, that finisher, which was a leg drop, I believe, off the middle or top middle middle rope. And I think he called it the Texas Trash Compactor. Yep. I always thought that always looked good. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of a fan of Bart. I'm happy to see that. I know he had some health issues, but he's been making the rounds and doing some of the, the fan fests across the country. And again, you know, I think the variable here is Kevin Von Erich. If Kevin Von Erich shows up, you could get a decent match out of these two. Yeah, Kevin was having problems with, uh, I know, his knees, uh, his shoulder. I think he had some concussion issues as well, but... I mean, for the big show, maybe he showed up and, and wrestled a good match. The problem with Black Bart, obviously, as he he had been portrayed as kind of a jobber to the stars on WTBS for about a year before he showed up as world-class as the new world-class champion. And this is where I think a lot of promoters were, were getting left behind by technology. It's like, you know, oh, our fans don't watch that show. No, yes, they do. And they know Black Bart is, you know, on the other station, he was not a star. And suddenly you're pushing him as a star. And that that's just not happening. Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, I, I don't know what you could have done in Texas at this point. And I, I, I have to think pushing Mike and then Chris right after, you know, you're certainly going to turn off a lot of the fan base. And I think maybe the female fan base of world class would accept him, but I don't see a lot of the tough Texans and the guys, you know, the guys that you could watch the guys walk around ringside all wearing cowboy hats and boots. Yep. They weren't going to accept the, you know, those guys too. I think the one thing Black Bart also, he was Ricky Harris, I know for a while, and then he became Black Bart. But I, I, there was something about him you know, they're, they're, they're really bizarre kind of facial expressions he would make, I really liked. But yeah, I, I don't know what could have been, been done to save world class at this stage. No, I think they had definitely been passed by. And like I said, they thought that it appears they thought that when Kerry came back, everything would be fine. But it's like, look, it's not 1982, 1983 anymore. I mean, Guys like Kerry Von Erich tend to have a shelf life, and I mean, his was just about up. Oh, it was uh, it was definitely up too. And I, you know, it's it, you see Kevin now, and I remember that dark side of the ring when they discussed the Von Erichs, which was a year or two years ago. And it, for a lot of us, especially because we knew that uh, there were uh, you know certain recreational things taking place with the Von Erichs. You know, we used to give them a hard time back in the 80s, whether, you know, through the Observer or other wrestling newsletters or things like that. But when I watched that dark side of the ring, it, it was really sad, if anything, to see Kevin, because you can see, even though he's trying his hardest and, and possibly has done a very good job of, you know, he's he's living, right? So that right there is a, a, a huge win. There's a lot of sadness there. You can see it. He misses his family, whether it's his father, his mother, his brothers. Everybody's gone. 
and you can see it's really taken a toll on him. So, yeah, I, I just I don't know what could have been done, and I think we could discuss the Von Erichs and the Von Erich tragedies probably to no end, and I, I don't know if anything would ever get solved by it, right? No, and but you know what? It's funny. I came away from Dark Side of the Ring with more of, wow, Kevin's doing good. He's he's out there with his sons. He's living in Hawaii. He got through it. I, to me, it was more uplifting than sad. Yeah, and look, and I can absolutely see it. And in some ways, it is uplifting. I, I think what I thought was sad, and, and I also know, look, Dark Side of the Ring is like any quote-unquote reality television show that's yep. out there, right? It, it's what they're, you know, it's what they're presenting to you. They might shoot six hours of footage and interviews and all this other stuff, and then they condense that down to like 46 minutes, right? So we know you're going to see whatever they want to present to you. But there were some scenes of Kevin, I believe, when he was like sitting in the tree and there was a sadness on his face. And it's just how I perceived it. But to your point, look, you're, you're John, you're absolutely correct. You're 100 percent correct. He made it through. He made it through a situation. And, you know, it, taking even out, you know, certainly the, the deaths as we know, started with David, but, you know, there was young Jack who was electrocuted I was in a say. puddle of water, I believe, you know, years earlier. Yeah, so th- there's a sadness that was with this family. No, he's got to go through life knowing that he has a brother who he never met that, that died early. That's, that's got to be tough. It does have to be tough. And then the fact that, you know, his brother's, uh, you know— committing suicide, dying, just everything happening. And then, of course, then his parents divorce when this is all said and done. After all these tragedies, his, you know, his parents actually get divorced. And then Fritz dies. I, don't, I believe it wasn't too long after that. And uh, I don't know when, I believe Doris, right? I don't know when she died. But, uh, you know, this, this is a life filled with tragedy. And, you know, it, again, it, to me, it's, it's so sad. It's very similar in some ways to the, you know, there are differences to the Graham family tragedies that have occurred in Florida with obviously Eddie Graham committing suicide, Mike Graham committing suicide, Mike's son committing suicide. I did not know Mike's son. So, yeah, so, and I'm, I'll actually get this correct too. So Eddie Graham was the first. Mike's son committed suicide, which was really the cat, uh, apparently the catalyst for Mike committing suicide. Which is really sad, you know, because he, Mike had two children. I'm very friendly with his daughter, who is Nicole. And, you know, to, to that end, you think of the tragedies that this woman has endured between losing her father, grandfather, and brother all to suicide. And Eddie lost his brother, who was Skip Gossett, to suicide two years ago. So there was another suicide that occurred with that, apparently he did have terminal cancer, is what I had heard and decided to. But he had been somebody that had been in the office. He was a referee at times. He worked in the office. So you've got four members of the same family, two brothers, a son and a grandson, all committing suicide. And then you've got this beautiful daughter who is happily married, has a beautiful child, and the pain that she's gone through will be immeasurable. You and I will never understand what she's been through. And I share this with you because this, I think it really touched me. And, you know, we, there, again, as we get older, I'm, I'm much more aware, you know, I'm not quite the arrogant cocky prick that I was 30 years ago. I'm a little different of a human being, thank God. But 
we honored her father and her grandfather at our first CWF Legends Fan Fest. And she is somebody that stayed away from wrestling. I think because she was young when Eddie, Eddie committed suicide, she was removed. She wanted really not much to do with wrestling. She went in a completely different direction with her life. And only after she lost her father was the curiosity factor, you know, wanting to know more about the accomplishments. And certainly in the state of Florida, the Graham family is, you know, that's second to none. So when we did this, we, we, we actually got a county commissioner to declare it Eddie Graham Day in Florida, which was a big deal in a sense. Yeah. And yeah, and her, her husband, Nicole's husband, came up to me and he said, and this is, you know, you start a Facebook group where you're trying to preserve the history of professional wrestling, and there are certain things that you can predict and other things you can't, right? Sure. So her husband came up to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder. He stands maybe five or six inches above me. He's much taller, and he said, I really want to thank you. He said, you'll never know, you'll never understand how much all this has meant to Nicole and what she's had to deal with. And I, I got really choked up as I'm getting a little bit right now because it really meant so much to me that he cared, you know, that he cared, that Nicole cared. And the group that I run, unlike our Breaking Kayfabe group, which is essentially a battle royale type of group, the CWF group is what I call a respect group. I don't let people come in and, you know, they. if you don't like Dusty Rhodes, say, I don't like Dusty Rhodes and this is why, but don't come in and say, Dusty Rhodes fucking sucks, right? Because it's disrespectful and because his children are in there. So by the same token, nobody can come in, I don't, we won't allow it, that you can't come in and start, you know, I hate this guy, he's a piece of shit, none of that. But you could say you don't like so-and-so for a reason. So with that, Nicole, who had never been around wrestling, spent a lot of time with us in the group. She shared uh, scrapbooks, and she gifted me. And I got to tell you, knowing how much I love – you know, I'm obsessed with CWF, right? That's safe to say. (laughs) I think we can all agree in that. So she gifted me with, like, 12 scrapbooks that Eddie's mother had put together for Eddie. These all go back to the 50s and the 60s. Oh, wow. Business ledgers of CWF listing every date and how much they drew and what the main event was, all in Eddie Graham's handwriting. And my favorite item from 1955, when Eddie was still young, the entire year of the town he worked, who he worked against, and how much he got paid, all in Eddie's handwriting. And I've never shared these digitally to this day. And I will at some point. I just have to figure out the best way to do it. But that right there, because she had the trust and the faith in me to do the right thing, she gifted me with those items. And that right there is the biggest thank you you could ever give to me, John. It really is. You know, let's talk about let's talk about Mike Graham for a minute. I used to watch Florida wrestling on cable. I completely bought Mike Graham as a top star, as a potential NWA champion, as, you know, just a top guy in Florida. I don't know, Barry, if you've ever met Mike Graham. I got to meet him once, and I love the guy. I mean, he was he wanted to talk. He was happy that I was a, a longtime fan, that I saw his matches, some of his matches against Dory Funk Jr., 
I feel like he gets a bad rap on the internet, and I, I can tell everyone personally that I enjoyed the man's company. What did you think of Mike, and have you ever met him? So the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And I'm going to go on a slight rant, John, because I get really irritated by people that criticize Mike Graham. If you grew up watching Mike Graham and you want to criticize him, I respect that. If you're on the Internet and you want to parrot mimic fucking Kevin Nash or any other jackoff that says Mike Graham never drew a dime, that is completely 100% incorrect. I was in the fucking front row on a weekly basis in Miami, West Palm Beach, and Fort Lauderdale throughout Mike's career, and Mike was super over, and Mike drew a lot of money. So, there again, this is people that live in Minnesota that started watching wrestling in 1991 and maybe saw Mike Graham work with Jushin Liger and then saw, you know, guys like Kevin Nash or Scott Hall call him a vanilla midget, et cetera, when he could have cleaned the clocks out of Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, both at the same time as well, because he was a legit badass and tough guy. Did I ever meet Mike Graham? I did. So I met Mike Graham in the 1970s, and he was a bit standoffish. I met Mike Graham, I should say, when I started the CWF page, and actually when I started the website, which would have been 2002, the first professional wrestler to reach out to me was Mike Graham, thanking me and wanting to know if we could do a quick phone call. We did. We had a phone call. I didn't see Mike for years, and I ran into Mike, I'll say, 10 years ago, maybe nine years ago. He was working a convention in New Jersey. So I went up to him. I introduced myself to him, and all of a sudden, a guy that was signing autographs, it was like he was meeting Santa Claus. He was so happy that I was from Florida that I had seen him in the 70s. We talked for 10 minutes, and I, I said, Mike, you know, have a great day, whatever. I went to the restaurant. I sat down at the table. Uh, I think I was with my friend, the professor, Pete Letterberg. And Mike Graham walks into the restaurant, looks around, makes a beeline for our table, sits down, joins us, and we discuss CWF for the next 90 minutes. And as excited as I was, he was equally, if not more, excited. Mike was a guy, and I always got this impression, and I heard a story, which I'll relate into it, but Mike was a guy, I think, that wrestling passed by. And, you know, I knew that he had a job in WCW for a limited time, but Mike had reached out, I believe, to impact wrestling at one point, and they didn't want to bring him in. And I, I believe what I had heard was, Dixie Carter's not really sure who Mike Graham is, something to that effect. And I had always heard that that he was crushed, that he, that they didn't want him. And it was based off of not a negative. They just didn't know who he was, you know, even though there was people in the company that I'm sure knew who he was. So, Mike, the business passed him by between that and the tragedies that he suffered and losing a child. I, I don't know if there will ever be a worse tragedy on the face of this earth. You know, I, can't I be. just I don't know how Mike did it. Exactly. There really can't be. So I always felt for Mike Graham. And I got to tell you, the time that I spent with him in New Jersey, the happiness. And it wasn't that it was me either. I always felt it could have been anybody from Florida that wanted to talk about the happiest point of his career. And he was just so happy to be able to have those conversations. That, that really means a lot, you know. 
Absolutely. I mean, I remember the story about Mike Graham being in WCW and Sid Vicious had just went to the WWF and they all sat down at the airport and Sid started getting mouthy and Mike was like, okay, we'll fight right now. And Sid like shows him a Band-Aid on his arm and Mike gets up and he ties one hand behind his back. He's like, hey, if you have a bad arm, I'll fight you with one hand tied behind my back. And I I absolutely know what would have happened to Sid. If he tried to fight Mike Graham, even with one hand tied behind his back, I know it would not have ended well for Mr. Udy. It it wouldn't. Mike was, look, I can say it too. Mike was a legit badass. Mike was best friends with Dick Slater. Dick Slater in high school could have taken any adult. You know, Dick Slater was, you know, all those stories are true. This was a guy that, you know, you just did not mess with on any form. And these two were best friends. These two ruled Tampa in a lot of ways. And there's that infamous story years ago where Ronnie Hill. So Ronnie Hill was, I believe, up New England somewhere is where he started. I believe he started for Pfeffer in Massachusetts, Jack Pfeffer. And he was the golden gladiator. And he worked in CWF, but he worked prelims in the late 60s, maybe early 70s, never had an impact and Eddie didn't like him for whatever the reasons were. And I, I can't tell you whether he was a great talent or not, because I don't really know. But he ran opposition to Eddie. And when you run opposition Uh-oh. in the state of Florida, if you did, exactly, there there was. And I loved it, though, because I, I work in an industry where we have competition. And one of my biggest complaints is that I don't feel that we react quick enough. And I've always felt. And I believe I got this maybe being a wrestling fan growing up. If you have competition, you cut the head off the snake immediately. You don't wait until the snake is 50 feet long and can eat a cow, right? You cut the head off when it's, when it's young so that it doesn't become something that you have to face later on in life. And Eddie had that philosophy, which I always thought was great. So Ronnie Hill was on a radio show years ago, and I, I believe it might have been the Ted Webb show, Ted who passed away within the last year, Tampa radio legend. This was the guy, every town, every big city's got a radio legend, right? Ted was the guy for, for Tampa, and at the same time was deeply tied into wrestling. Great friends with everybody. You know, I, I really enjoyed the guy, really liked the guy. So Ronnie Hill's on this show, and he's talking some sort of nonsense about, I think he's breaking kayfabe, and uh, talking of you know matches uh, are predetermined. He's being honest in that regard, but he, I believe he's talking about the Grams in some form. Mike Graham shows up to where this interview is taking place. I believe. Hey Barry, could I get a time frame on this? I'm going to say 90s. I don't know exactly, but I'm going to say 90s. Okay. So it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't so crazily long ago. It was after CWF closed, and that closed in 1987. So it was at some point after that. So Mike Graham shows up. I believe they were at a local bar, and Mike Graham shows up and proceeds to beat the shit out of Ronnie Hill on air. Oh no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So just to say that, you know, first off, and again, and Mike, and here was the other aspect. Mike, in his early stage, was a power lifter. Mike was 220, 240. He was, he was heavy. He was bulky. He was not muscular. When Mike got out of wrestling, he might have been 100. And when he was done, he might have been 165, 170 pounds max. So we're not talking this big, gigantic guy. Still would have kicked the ass of everybody, though, and did. 
I, I, I totally believe it. I mean, the Mike Graham stories are out there. All right, let's go to the Louisiana Superdome on Thanksgiving night, 1986. They drew 13000 for this show, Barry. Yeah, and I got to tell you, so I, I like this card. And I, I say this a lot on Breaking Fabe. Bill Watts was one of the, if not the greatest promoter or booker as far as presenting a product to the fans. I, I'm not talking about behind the scenes and payoffs and rules and all the other stuff. I always felt like Bill Watts could put any card out there and he could make everything interesting. And a lot of it, I will give credit to Jim Ross because at his zenith, in his heyday, the Jim Ross now is a shell of what he used to be. Jim Ross could call, you know, he could call a cockroach race and he could make it the most exciting thing on the face of the earth. And I never forget when they were doing the whole Chavo Guerrero and Gary Young rookie of the year. And then it was Steve Cox. Do you remember Steve Cox and and Gary Young and who's going to win rookie of the year? And I, I got to tell you, I could care less about Steve Cox or Gary Young, but it was interesting. And that was through the booking of Bill Watts and the the calling of Jim Ross. He could do it. So when I look at this card, there's some good on here. There's some great on here. And there's, you know, then there's, you know, Gary Young versus the Libyan or Jeff Gaylord versus Art Cruz. And Ken Massey, you know, is working on this card. These are not guys that I typically would think I'm going to pay money to see. But yet, somehow through Bill Watts and through Jim Ross, you make it interesting to me, John. I agree with you. And yeah, you know, Art Cruz, I, I I saw him around this era. He had really gotten out of shape, but he could still work. He was a really good worker around this time. Yeah, Art, you know, and, he, and Art Cruz, I got to say too, it's Gaylord probably, and, and I'm sure that because you're an old newsletter guy like I am, there's a lot of Jeff Gaylord stories out there. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, Jeff Gaylord. Oh, yeah. Jeff Gaylord was, and I got to say, I saw Jeff Gaylord over the summer at the gathering in Charlotte, and I'm assuming we're roughly the same age. This guy looks like this guy. This is the kind of guy that if I was looking to get laid, and, and certainly I am, I would want to walk into a bar with Jeff Gaylord full of single women because I just want to get his cast offs. You know, <laughs> like this guy looks like a, he looks better now, in my opinion. He's got salt pepper hair, but the shape he is in, oh, it's unbelievable. But as a wrestler, Jeff Gaylord was never great. Certainly the stories of his intelligence or lack thereof are also legendary. But yeah, Art Cruz was good. And look, Gary Young wasn't bad either. Gary Young, uh, also at the gathering in Charlotte, wasn't a bad worker. And when I talked about Ken Massey, Ken Massey working against the Angel of Death, and I'll raise my hand right now, John, I was a fan of the Angel of Death. So was I. Here's a guy who learned how to speak Russian because they made him a Russian assassin. <laughs> What I was going to say about Jeff Gaylord was I, I met him once, and let's just say not everyone's going to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> yeah, the nicest possible way that you could say that as yeah. well. Uh, yeah. I'm glad he's doing good. Yeah, you know, he looked, again, physically looked good. He's uh, certainly was 100% sober uh, when I saw him. But this is the guy I think that is still making daily trips to the gym because he just looked fantastic. Another team that I liked on this card, uh, Leroy Brown and Bill Irwin. I got to say, 
I was a fan of these two. And Bill Irwin is a, to me is a polarizing guy. There's good and bad to Bill Irwin. I always felt his team with Leroy Brown for me as odd as it was, it worked, and I don't know why. I don't know why either. I remember reading about them in the magazines. Leroy Brown had kind of been gone for a while, and I later learned that thanks to health problems. But it was such an odd team, it worked. And I am one of those guys who think that thinks that Wild Bill Irwin should have had a bigger career. When he was getting a push in Georgia in 1983, I totally bought him as a top guy. Yeah, and so we saw Bill Irwin in Florida a few times, too, and uh, he he was always an underneath guy. I do think his strength was teaming with his brother, who was the late Scott Hogg Irwin, uh, whether they were the Long Riders or whether they were the Super Destroyers. I, and I think Super Destroyers they would have done. But I, I always bought into that. I had no problem with Bill Irwin. He was a fine worker. His brother was next level as a worker, and that's a tragedy as well. That was a career cut short by brain cancer that eventually wound up taking his life. Uh, Passed away way too early. But, you know, talking about Scott Irwin, and not to get too far off, but I always do, Scott Irwin as the Super Destroyer teaming with the mass superstar on TBS. I mean, my God, John, how great was that team? With the with the masked assassin as as the third man. Now I am one of those people. I've said this on the show before, but it's been probably over a year. I believe that if Scott Irwin had not gotten sick, that the Irwin brothers had found their niche as a tag team as the Long Riders, and they would have had an impressive run either in the WWF or JCP. They would have been one of the. I'm guessing WWF. Like they would have been up there with with Demolition and the Heart Foundation as far as being a good team and getting that big push. Oh, you said demolition. So just as I can give a cheap plug to this, demolition headlining the next CWF Legends Fan Fest, number 8, June the 4th of next year. John, putting you on the spot, it's been 24 years. If we get you to Florida for June the 4th, that'll be 25 years. Demolition is there. Alundra Blaze, Medusa Michelli is there. Other great talents. Can we see Johnny Mac? Will you saunter on down to the Tampa area for the next Fan Fest? Oh, man. I feel like I I just (laughs) talked about this. It's been like six months. The honest answer is no, and I'll tell you why. I am done flying. I'm done with deal. I've dealt with TSA more than once, and I'm just done with them. Like, I understand they got to do what they got to do. Forget it. I ain't flying nowhere. And I once drove from Florida to New Hampshire, and it was the longest two days of my life. So, Barry, I have to politely decline. <laughs> All right. Exactly. You know how some guys will give you a story about, oh, well, I'll see. I don't know. Like, you know, I'm not coming then. <laughs> it's that simple. Yes. I wish I could. Yes, I got to say. I do know about those stories because I get them all the time. So, yes, I'm very aware. So, John, ultimate respect for you not bullshitting me on that. Score one for <laughs> you, my friend. I try not to bullshit too many people on this show. The main event on this show was a steel cage match between Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Michael Hayes. For those of us who saw UWF in 1986, Michael Hayes was at his absolute zenith as a heel, in my opinion. And I'm sure a lot of these people came out just to see him get what he had coming against Dr. Death. Oh, absolutely, too. And look, Michael Hayes... Never a great worker, 
Michael Hayes could take bumps. Michael Hayes in a in a cage with Steve, and he knew how to rile up a crowd, right? His strength was his connection to the fans, the fact that he could get people angry just by looking at them, and he would do the gyrations of the hips. He was purely sexy, all this other bullshit. Michael Hayes and Steve Williams in the cage, you know that that was going to draw people because everybody knew that uh, that Steve Williams was going to kick his ass. I don't think there was probably a thought that Williams wasn't going to win, but you were buying a ticket to see how much Steve Williams was going to beat up Michael Hayes. So, yeah, I could absolutely see that. Uh, but let me ask you a question, John. The match before this, Terry Taylor working against Buddy Jack Roberts in a barbed wire cage match why have two different types of cage matches on a card? Like, why have a barbed wire cage match and then a steel cage match? What's the logic there? I I don't know. And assuming we have the order of matches correctly, these were the final two matches on the show. Now, for those of us who are not as old as Barry and I, those cages took a long time to be put up. It took like 20, 25 minutes. So you're waiting that long for one match, and then you got to wait another 20. Oh, I'm sorry. For the second one, you have to wait for the first cage to be taken down and then the second cage right. to be put back up. So that's kind of crazy. No, and that's and that's my whole point. Like that doesn't. Why not do two barbed wire cage matches or two steel cage matches? But why do the whole the whole other deal? It just that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, you also on this card, you had a UWF World Title match: Jim Duggan versus the One Man Gang. I would. I was a fan. Like I liked Duggan a lot prior to uh, you know that that movie was making in just a few months going to the WWF. But I always liked the one-man gang in this role, too, whether it was here or whether it was world-class when he would do Moon. I always loved that from Halstead Street in Chicago with Gary Hart. I liked the one-man gang, and I always thought, you know, I hated what they did with him when he get to the Federation, but... At the same time, you know, that that wasn't even wrestling at that point, right? That was sports entertainment, so I don't fault the guy for making a living, but that match got me. But I'll tell you the match I think I would have possibly enjoyed the most, the missing link against Rick Steiner. I really liked Rick Steiner at this stage also, John. Couple of things. I would have never guessed in a million years that the missing link was Dewey Robertson. I was absolutely floored when I learned that because obviously the missing link, you know, wherever parts unknown is, they have a gym and he spent a lot of time there. And Dewey just, you know, he wasn't a muscular guy or an overly muscular guy like missing link. I was floored by that. One man gang, when I first saw him in the magazines is Crusher Broomfield and then One Man Gang, and he had that long hippie hair. I thought nothing of him. And then he got that mohawk, and I looked at that guy, and I was like, he just made a million dollars. This guy has a million-dollar look. I never understood why in 87, when he left UWF after the sale and went to the WWF, how he never had a major program with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and I don't. It, it again. He was he was adept at working with big guys too, right? So yeah, because Duggan Duggan was a big guy, right? So yeah, it didn't make any sense too. But you know, it was again that that was a very much, in my opinion, very much a cartoonish era for the WWF. Oh God, yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe he didn't fit into it. 
his greatest success was when he became Akeem, right? Which, I mean, that's an, in my opinion, that's an embarrassing gimmick mm-hmm. on every level, but it also probably made him the most money of his entire career. So I get why, and probably the least amount of work. So I get why he did it. But yeah, that's, that's a missed opportunity. Absolutely, John. No, I, I agree. Let's go back to Michael Hayes. I had never heard a bad word about Michael Hayes' work, except for the fact that he threw a stiff punch, until Bill Watts did a shoot interview saying that he brought Buddy Roberts into the Freebirds because Michael Hayes couldn't work. And to me, this is like, you know, the what you were saying earlier about the vanilla midget thing. Like, I think sometimes people are more ears than eyes. I have seen Michael Hayes work. I'm not saying he was a great worker, but he was at his best. He was an above average worker. So basically, I disagreed with Bill Watts and I disagree with everyone who's kind of parroting his opinion. Yeah, look, I I think if you watch Hayes never looked. Oh, he wasn't a natural like he wasn't fluid in the ring. And I think that's partly and again, Bill Watts saw him. Before we did, John, you know what I mean? Bill Watts saw a young Michael Hayes. So Michael Hayes, I'm sure, got a lot better throughout the years. And, you know, I I think when was he first in Mid-South? Was it like 78 or 79, right? I want to say late 79, early 80, yeah. So that was a different Michael Hayes than the guy that we saw, you know, years later in Mid-South and then the UWF. Uh, But you're right about the parroting. A lot of people will say that, look, Buddy Jack was a great worker, but at the same time, Buddy Jack was a little on the smaller side. Buddy Jack wasn't in the greatest shape, but he did seem like he fit in. But I agree with you about the whole parroting thing. People do read it. They hear it. You know, again, I, I, I think that initially when Bill Watts made that decision in late 79, early 80, I don't think that held true by 85. I think that was probably different at that stage. Counterpoint, um, before Bill Watts did this interview, I saw some of Michael Hayes' work in Memphis in like uh, 79, mid-79. And, I, you know, and this is a point in my life where, like, late 80s, early 90s, I am looking at everything through the work rate microscope, and I never had a problem with any of his work. I thought, I'm not saying he was Jushin Liger, but I thought I never had a problem with him. I, I'm you know, again, I, I saw him pre-Watts, and I saw a guy with uh, a lot of talent, a lot of charisma, and decent in the ring. So I actually saw Michael Hayes in Memphis TV in 1979 when the Freebirds, which was Hayes and Gordy, yep. made their Memphis debut. And I was there for the WFIA fan convention. Uh, that was my my second one. Wow. And, uh, and I got to tell you. Yeah, exactly. Lucky, but pure, you know, look, you talk about none of this was by design, right? In a sense, like I just going to to Memphis. That was also a very young Terry the Hulk Boulder and his brother, Eddie Boulder, who obviously was Brutus Beefcake. So I was fortunate. But to, to what you just said, I never noticed if Hayes was a good worker or not. It didn't strike me as a bad worker. You know, I didn't see anything that stood out. And there were certain guys, look, even at that stage, I was... 15 years old, I guess. But even at 15, if a guy wasn't good, I was aware that he wasn't good. And Hayes never struck me that way. 
Well, same here. I Like I said, I just disagree with Bill Watts on that. And like I said, you know, I mean, everyone check for yourself. I mean, pre-1989 Michael Hayes, I, I never had a problem with him in the ring. But anyway... Off to another show, the St. Paul Civic Center in St. Paul, Minnesota. They drew 4,000 for this show. By the way, I will post all of the shows on the Stick to Wrestling uh, Facebook group. Main event, Nick Bockwinkle versus Larry Zbysko. I I have no idea how many times these guys wrestled in St. Paul. That feud was already about two years old by this point, and they still drew 4,000, which I am impressed by. Yeah, and this is... This is a tough card in a lot of ways when you look at it as well. Bockwinkle Zabisco. So I should say, too, as a human being, I love Larry Zabisco. You won't meet a friendlier, funnier guy. I met Larry for the first time, again, cheap plug, at a CWF Legends Fan Fest. We had talked once on the phone, and Larry showed up. And Larry drives. He's an easygoing guy. Like He, he always wears a Hawaiian shirt. He's always wearing flip-flops. He golfs all the time. He drives a Volkswagen. And Larry shows up, and I meet him out in the parking lot. And literally, within five minutes of meeting Larry, you feel like you've known him your entire life. He's just this really warm, friendly guy that treats people extremely well. Like, I got the greatest vibe from him. As a wrestler, I hated the stalling shit. Like, I really, I just, you know, I couldn't do it. You know, like, his matches would come on, and I knew you were going to get stalling for five minutes. And I understand why he does it, but at the same time, I couldn't watch him as a wrestler. So, you know, that match, to me, I'm not sure. I do think the match just before it had to be your match of the night. You know, that's a great match. Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, the Midnight Rockers with Despina Montegas, underrated female wrestler. And a cutie. Yeah, but you know what? I, I think in some way she was cute. She was married to uh, Tarzan Goto for years, and they lived in Tampa, actually, John. They lived here, oh, wow. and she worked a few shows. Yeah, she worked some indie shows here. I believe they're since divorced, but she never fit the mold of what they were trying to push, at least in my eyes. She was a great worker. I thought she was beautiful. She had a few extra pounds, and I don't know if that's what you know a big company was looking to push at that time. I believe she got in great shape after that. And I, I don't know about you, but I love Greek people. I love Greek women. I love Greek food. So the fact that she was Greek, I was already like a big fan of hers. But they're working against, I think, maybe the most underappreciated tag team of the 1980s that was only together for a short time. I'm not talking a team that had a a long run in multiple territories, but Buddy Rose and Doug Summers with Sherry Martell was one of these that became magic. And Doug Summers, for all intents and purposes, spent his entire career putting other people over. He was a guy I saw in 75 he lost two matches in one night, the first match on the card and the third match on the card. Here was a guy that really never got a push. And then they pair these two together and holy shit, magic takes place. I could watch, you know, especially the midnight rockers at this stage work with Rose and summers. I could watch on an endless loop. Give me the best of, and I'll just continue to watch it. John. Here's what's important to note too. Sherry Martell was not, 
a big star yet. She was known as a wrestler, and then the AWA makes her the manager of this tag team. The first time she'd ever managed, and you're right, the three of them, what's that old expression, the sum of the parts uh, comes out to more than the than the individual parts or whatever it is? I mean, Buddy Rose was a guy, let's be honest, that, you know, JCP, Watts, and the WWF just didn't want because he didn't have the right look. Doug Summers, no disrespect to Doug, he was a good worker, but he was a career jobber. And Sherry's just another, you know, girl wrestler that the WWF didn't want and you put these three together and like you said it was magic yeah and, and you're now the whole right the sum of the parts being greater right but it's uh it really was so again it was this was the Bill Irwin Leroy Brown deal that you know on paper what this doesn't make any sense and then you watch him and you go wow this really works and there's and I, I hate to pull up this analogy and I'm not even a fan but this whole RK bro thing that's taking place right now Randy Orton and, and Riddle that's awful. It is. It's awful. And I'll give you, I, I can't stand it, but to the credit, it's working in the WWE because people, their fan base seems to love it. And it seems like it's getting over. Obviously, Helen Keller and uh, Leroy McGurk can predict what's going to happen in the future with these two. I think anybody can predict that. But at the same time, you have these really odd pairings and they work sometimes. I love when that happens, except for what's taking place in the WWE right now that I don't love. No, I, I don't. I'm not someone who automatically like, Oh, if, if it's 2021, it sucks. I, I, you know, NXT has put on so many great shows. Um, that's over. Well, we'll see what happens in December. I've got an open mind about it, but also I, I have the feeling it's not going to be like the NXT shows in the past. But I mean, I mean, we're coming right off the Survivor Series, and I it, that was it was an average show. And I'm not again, I'm not someone who hates all things WWE, but that thing with Vince and the Egg was just terrible. It's uh, in God knows I the last thing I ever want to do is ever discuss WWE in great length. But I sat on the couch. So I should say, John, I uh, I took an edible last night, and it was a uh, a stronger than usual. And I sat on the couch, and I started watching the Survivor Series. I dug into a delicious pizza, and at about 9.40, I was fast asleep on the couch until about 4 a.m. And I woke up, and I was like, did I miss anything? I grab my phone. I start to look, and I'm happy to say I think me getting sleep was a much better deal than me watching a, a below-average, average-at-best pay-per-view. So I did not see it. Yeah, and that whole egg thing that I read about, just tell me why. I can't. So I grew, as you did, John, again, we're, we're roughly the same age. We've been wrestling fans for, I, I mean, I'm 50 years at this point as a wrestling fan. I've always understood, especially as I got older, that, what I see on television is designed to get me to spend money, to buy tickets, to buy products, to, to you know, T-shirts, merchandise, whatever. How is this stupid egg? And is there, is there a human being alive that believes that this egg is worth $100 million and it's sitting in a glass <laughs> container on a desk in an office that you can clearly see is not his office that was just thrown together? Why? Why in God's name? Why, how do you insult the, the million people or whatever? I don't know what the, how many people watch this. How do you insult every single person that watches it by putting on something so incredibly fucking stupid? That's my issue, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
No, it's okay. They they think Raw is going to do a big rating tonight as we're recording this. Now, as we wrap up the wrestling part of this, I, I mean, I get it. It's Thanksgiving night. It's Starcade. Well, you give up things for Starcade, right? Most of the guys lived in Charlotte anyway. I know some of the guys had to go to Atlanta, but it's Starcade. World Class has a show. All right, most of the guys live in Dallas, so they get to have dinner with their family before going to see wrestling. Same thing with the UWF. Most of the guys homesteaded in and around New Orleans, so they get to have Thanksgiving. AWA, same thing. Most of the guys are in or or around the Twin Cities. Why is Vince McMahon having shows, just regular old house shows, in uh, Trotwood, Ohio, which I always thought was Dayton, the Harrow Arena, and <laughs> lovely Springfield, Massachusetts. Like, why not just give the guys the night off? I, I mean, my God. There, but y- y- there are so many questions we could ask besides the ones you're asking that we could sit here and go, explain to me why. What I did catch, what I saw of Vince McMahon last night was, A, he's aging. It looks like there might have been some sort of plastic surgery occurring. He had almost a Joker look on his face, which yep. uh, would tell me that he's been might have been pulled a little too tight. Still trying to do his walk, which you know, I just it was last night. John was it gave me the douche chills, and it was cringeworthy in the sense that if I had had. A straight near me, and straight is what I call the people who don't watch wrestling, and we've all had them, whether it's a parent, a girlfriend, you know, a a potential, a friend, whatever it is, you know, it would be like if they were with me and this comes on and I have to try to explain it or justify it, I would rather go crawl underneath my bed than have to do any of that because it was that embarrassing to me last night as as a professional wrestling fan. That happened to me in whenever George Steele came on TV, whenever the yes. Moondogs came on yes. TV. That was pretty much it for me. Oh, I, George Steele was absolute. Look, and this is not, but it, it, you know, George in Eugene. How do you, you know, my ex being my ex, a great person by the way, but very uh, sympathetic when it comes to special needs children. She had done volunteer work with special needs children. And how do you even explain something like Eugene, which was, what, 15, 20 years ago? It wasn't like it was in the 70s. You know, how do you explain that where you've got a guy pretending to be mentally disabled? I mean, it, it's it's wrong. It's disgusting on every level. And it's an insult. And when my wife saw it, my wife at the time saw it. How, what do you do? You're you're so embarrassed, and then you're embarrassed to be a wrestling fan. And it's you know there is a stigma attached, as you know. There's a stigma attached to professional wrestling. There's a stigma attached to being a wrestling fan. And I have spent so many years defending it. I finally just said, you know, what the fuck? If you want to hate it or whatever, if it's stupid to you, more power. I don't really care. But at the same time, there's so much good about professional wrestling, and then there's the George Steele, the Eugenes, this stupid egg segment that occurs, that who's the audience? Who was that? You know, at least when they did the gobbledygooker, which we could agree really stupid, there might have been 10 year olds at home going, how cool is this? There's a giant turkey, right? That I could see. Who did this fucking egg play to last night? Like, where's the what's the audience? There is no audience for this. That's how out of touch this guy is. 
I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I get it. The, the, the stigma thing, when I was in my early teens or even pre-teens, I would take my bike to the next town over and buy the wrestling magazines. And, you know, <laughs> once I got old enough, when I was 16, I would drive to Merrimack, New Hampshire, to buy wrestling magazines. They, they came out earlier there. But, I mean, still, I wasn't buying magazines where anyone I might know might see me purchasing them. That's the way it was. Absolutely. And look, right now I am uh, I am in the dating pool, right? The dating scene. Do you think I'm wearing a T-shirt that says, you know, hug me, I'm a Dusty Rhodes fan, right? Absolutely not. So it's, uh, you know, it, there is a stigma attached to it. There always will be. And all we can hope for, you know, again, I, I would maybe the day that I die where it isn't so fucking stupid anymore, you know? I, I feel that I can watch certain things on television, you know, whether it's a TV show, and, and maybe there's something stupid about it, but with professional wrestling, and the reason I'll always... Look, AEW, and I love AEW, John. I am a fan. I am a defender. Do they have problems and faults? Of course they do, like every business on the face of the earth does, but at the same time, I really enjoy the product, what they do, but at, at what point... During our lives, John, as we become older, as we, you know, I'm in the, what, the seventh inning at this point, right? <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> this is it. At, at, at what point does it stop being so ridiculously stupid that you can put on only good things? And there was the AEW pay-per-view, which I believe was a week and a half ago uh, from this recording. And I didn't get to see it because I was traveling. I was out, you know, going back from Florida to, to Pennsylvania. And by and large, every review I read was possibly greatest pay-per-view of the last 20 or 30 years, flawless on a lot of different levels, and there was no gap whatsoever. And you go back to some of these great NXT TakeOver shows, these were fantastic, right? So, oh, yeah. Exactly. They were, they, in my opinion, that, that to me is the best wrestling I've seen out of the U.S. in the last 20 or 30 years. Everyone, and even the matches that weren't the best, were still really good. But the matches that were really good were fucking great. They were phenomenal. So, of course, we got to tinker with it and destroy it. But at the same time, why can't professional wrestling be like that AEW pay-per-view that everybody was raving about or those NXT takeovers that I absolutely loved. Why can't professional wrestling be like that? Why do we have to go back to this other stupid shit? Makes no sense to me. No, and the worst part is, and you know, now you just know, like, I'll give one example. I thought Shayna Baszler was a gold mine when she was in NXT. Yes. Like, you know, can't you see you have something so special on your hands? And the WWE, they bring her to the main roster, and of course, they pour water on that fire that was Shayna Baszler. But anyway, I have heard nothing but good things about the AEW pay-per-view myself. I will watch it at some point. Barry and I have given every everyone about an hour and 10 minutes of wrestling content but wait there's more this is one of those weeks where we are going to give you bonus content we're going to talk about something non-wrestling related 
And by doing something different, I'm saying that Barry and I are going to talk about the Twilight Zone for about 15 or 20 minutes. So if you're not interested in that, thank you for listening. I wish you a a good rest of your day. If you are planning on watching this 60-year-old show and don't want any spoilers, you might want to stop listening right now. But Barry, we are going to talk about our, our final four of Twilight Zone episodes, the four best, because you didn't want to do five, which absolutely <laughs> cracked me up. So I, uh, yeah, Jeff is very sensitive. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do is you and I doing a top five. So I, I did say, I said, John, we can do three, four, six, seven, whatever you want to do. I didn't want to do, but you have taken that and you've made it the final four. You've given it its own identity. So, so, and just so I'm clear, were you looking for my four favorite or the four that I think are the best? Because that doesn't always coincide with each other. Uh, for for me, it does, actually. Okay. Uh, but you can do whichever you like. But I want to say this before we lose the whole audience. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I just chased everyone away. There, The number nine on my list is The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. If you have if you have not watched this episode, I checked. It's on YouTube. You need to watch it. If you haven't if you haven't watched it recently, you need to watch it because not getting political, but the way we have become in the United States with uh, getting information on misinformation on Facebook, misinformation on Twitter, misinformation everywhere. You want to see this? It is not pro-left it is not pro-right it is pro calm the fuck down everyone needs to see this episode i strongly recommend that you do that barry any thoughts on the monsters are due on maple street which is my number nine yeah what i was i mean everything you just said is right is that it it so falls into you know what's going on in the world today and it's not it isn't about politics essentially it is not you know you can construe it to Right. You could turn, but it it really is a social commentary. What I think is amazing about this episode, first off, the acting is great. Claude Aikens, I've always yes. been a fan of Claude Aikens, right? So, yeah, I think he's great. But that Rod Serling somehow had the foresight some 60 years ago to come up with an episode like this. I mean, how does that happen, right? That's, in my opinion... The beauty of The Twilight Zone as a series all the way around is the fact that it is light years, it is decades above where it should have been. The fact that he was doing this beginning in the late 1950s is almost it's unimaginable to me to be able to to be able to present something that is still to this day so relevant because as you're to your point, you could watch this right now. And even though this episode is close to 60 years, 55 years, I think it's right around that that era, it's still super relevant today. There's nothing about it that appears to be dated. That's magic. It really is. And one general thing about The Twilight Zone, it came out not long after World War II. And we, all of us, learned a lot of hard lessons thanks to World War II, thanks to nazi germany and now i am starting to get afraid that we have unlearned those lessons or we have a lot of people who were too young to have experienced it i mean i i 
Growing up in New York, you know, I knew people who survived concentration camps, and those people obviously are all gone, and it just seems like we're forgetting about, hey, let's not let that happen. That's not what this episode is about. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it is a must-watch, must and on top of everything, it's very entertaining. Barry, what was your fourth best slash most favorite Twilight Zone? Oh, I have so many in my... There are so many great ones. There really are. And and if you ask me today, this list is probably different as to what I might present to you in a month or two. Mm-hmm. But we actually did an episode, Jeff and myself, it was one of our first episodes, literally might have been the fourth or fifth episode. I did one. I think you did the second one. Hitchcock did the third. I came on full time in the fourth. So it was four, five, or six, but we actually had Mark Scott Zacree, who is the author of the Twilight Zone handbook. Of that book? Wow. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was like a two-hour episode we did, and he was at a cafe in either somewhere in England or France, and it was it, it was a clusterfuck on a lot of levels because of that. But at the same time, uh, Zakria is considered the ultimate Twilight Zone guy. There is, you know, this is it. This is the number one Twilight Zone guy. So that was a great conversation. So for me, right now, I'm going to go with right now, the passerby is my fourth favorite. And the passerby doesn't get a lot of love, but essentially it's the end of the Civil War. And a Confederate Army sergeant played by James Gregory. A lot of people would know James Gregory from Barney Miller. Uh, He's been wounded in battle. He's walking down this road with a wooden crutch. And he winds up in front of a mansion which belongs to a lady, uh, a Southern Belle. And her husband had been killed in the Civil War. And she was very angry towards the Union Army. So on this road... A lot of the soldiers are walking, and uh, it's a very beautifully shot, kind of eerie. I am going to spoil this, but at the same time, this is almost 60 years ago, if not 60 years. It is. It's uh, 1959, and as it turns out, all these soldiers that are walking on this road are all dead. That it's very similar to uh, you know to maybe an M Light Shyamalan movie in a sense. So I I I never I guess I didn't realize I'm not that bright first off. So I didn't realize that they some people would say oh I, I knew when I saw everybody walking that they were all dead. I didn't get that. I I saw these as soldiers going home to their families. Same here. Instead, they're all going somewhere and they're on this road. So I was really taken with this this episode. And it wasn't one that I saw, John, because I've been watching Twilight Zone since I was a kid in reruns, right? Same here. This wasn't an episode that I saw that made an impact on me. And then about six or seven years ago, I went through, I think, the entire catalog once again, which I do every few years. And I was really taken with the beauty of this episode on a lot of different levels couple of things. I have the Sakri book. Um, I got it, I want to say, like five years ago. One of the best things about it is that I don't agree with everything he says. Like, for example, um, 
There was one episode, an hour-long episode with Julie Newmar, and I'm trying to think of the name of it. Of late, I think of Cliffordville. He did not like that episode, and that's okay. I loved that episode. So you get a different point of view. But anyway, as far as that one goes, it goes to show you how great this show was. They had 155 episodes. I would say only 10 or 15 of them were bad. And for me, uh, the one you're talking about, The Passersby, I think I have that around 60 or 70. And by the way, when this podcast come out, I will put on the Facebook page my ranking of all 155 Twilight Zone episodes. But even the ones in the middle are so good, like that one. Yeah, so my issues with uh, the Twilight Zone... The ones that I didn't like are the ones that generally revolve around some sort of comedy. For whatever reason, I just never took to that. Let me tell you a great thing about the Zakree book, too, though. So if you notice, he's done several different editions. There's a first edition. So I actually got the first edition. I want to say it was 81, 82. And I was in college, and I took a class, and the entire class was built around the Twilight Zone. So just imagine, you know, I got an A in that one. <laughs> That's the only A I've ever gotten in college occurred because of the Twilight Zone. Really? Yeah, exactly. So it was about television, and it started off, I forget, it was something to do with uh, social aspects of uh, television medium. I forget some bullshit title, right, that the class had given, but we literally spent 75% of that class discussing the Twilight Zone. Everybody had to have that handbook. We would watch episodes. We would go through what the meanings were, all this stuff. And what I liked about Mark's book is, again, he's done, I'll say, 10 editions. There might be more. And he'll change them. And we brought up, he hated the episode Little Girl Lost. Do you remember this episode? I definitely do. And I, I again, I didn't love it, but I liked it. So it's about a little girl that rolls underneath her bed and winds up in a completely different dimension. And there's something that's a little creepy about it. Well, Mark hated this, at least in the edition that I had, right? Didn't like it. Said the little girl's acting was terrible. He wasn't really far off on that to begin with. I believe the voice of the little girl was played by June Foray, who was the voice of uh, Rocky the Squirrel from Rocky and Bullwinkle, and he was very critical of this episode. So I brought that up to him, and he said, got to tell you, I've softened up on this episode. I actually like it now, and he put that in his book. So what I like, John, is that here's a guy that's probably seen these episodes, I don't know, dozens of times, but he'll watch them. And look, I always felt like when it comes to things like music and TV and stuff, What I may have hated 30 years ago or what I may have liked 30 years ago, I may not like today because I'm different, right? I'm a different person in some ways. And I think that Mark has actually embraced that, and I really respect that. That is good, and and I agree with you. Like, you know, our our tastes change, and that's great. There was a show on when I was a teenager called Soap, and I loved that show. I thought it was hilarious. And then maybe 10 years ago, I order it on Netflix, and I'm like, okay – 
this is little kid humor. That's why you liked it when you were in your teens. A couple of things. Uh, we're talking about that episode. The first time I saw it, and I had to be like 13, 14 years old, the little girl is lost, and the lady says, hey, let's bring in whoever, our neighbor next door. He's a scientist. And I was like, oh, God, isn't that convenient? But it was still a good episode. Yeah. Barry, I figured this out. You said you got one A in college. I got a 3.83 score. And I'm like, oh, how did that happen? I'm like, oh, Barry probably went to a way better school than I did. That's all. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. But it's, yeah, I was never what I would classify as a great student. And I think at the end of the day, and even to this day, if I really am not into something, it's very hard for me to pretend like I'm into it. And I think with college, I just I wasn't into college. But put the Twilight Zone. I did. So I always joke. In college, I did the Twilight Zone and breakfast extremely well because we went out to breakfast, a group of us, every day, and I loved going out to breakfast. And if I could have gotten a grade for that, it would have been an A+. Plus. Oh, man. I almost got lost. I was de- determined to get a 4.0, and finally I, I got a B-plus on, on a in a class and i'm like okay i missed not just by one but by two and I'm like where's my 4.0 and for a while or a little while at least i'm like okay that goal is gone now what and it's like well just get the best grade you can but anyway my number four oh and i agree with you i said there were like 10 or 15 bad twilight zone episodes most of them were attempts at comedy, like uh, a coming for Cavender or the Bard. Those were horrible. Ugh. So I, I totally agree yes. with you. My number four was a game of pool. And it is one of my favorite episodes. First of all, there are only two people in it, Jonathan Winters and Jack Klugman. The acting was absolutely superb. Jack Nicholson's character was amazing, and the storyline was amazing. It was about um, a guy who was the greatest pool player on earth. And you had that, this was Jonathan Winters, and Jack Klugman's character was wanting to be this guy. So Jonathan Winters' character rises from the dead and shows up at a pool hall to play against Jack Klugman to see who the best pool player is. And the stakes were that if Klugman wins, he is considered the greatest of all time. If he does not win, he dies. He gets his life taken from him. And they consolidated that into the greatest 22 minutes imaginable. What are your thoughts on that one? It's a great. So, you know, Serling had two actors that I think he truly loved and he loved working with. uh, One being Klugman, the other being Burgess Meredith. And uh, Jack Klugman, it's a... I actually like it's a great episode. I actually like the other episode that he was in. Is that on your list by any chance or no? Or can I spoil that? Uh, You can spoil that. Gotcha. So it's in praise of Pip. And I think it's partly it's uh, it's in relations to his son. It's a very touching episode. But uh, Jack Klugman was one of those guys that I, I always felt he could be on television and he could be reading the phone book and I still would have tuned in to watch. He was just such an interesting guy between his face and his voice. But this is a great episode. And I think 
the key with this one, the glue in some ways, is Jonathan Winters, who, you know, everybody knows Jonathan Winters as a comedian. Uh, he was the father of Robin Williams. In, or was he the father? He was the son of Robin Williams in uh, Mork and Mindy. I was going to say father, but... Uh, right. It was the reverse. But he was a great comedic actor. And here he is not doing comedy. And he kind of blows you away in this episode. Right. So I would probably put this one in my top 10. I have a, I don't have the list in front of me, but in praise of Pip is in my top 10. I think it's number six. And be ready to cry when you see that one. All right, Barry, what was your number three? So my number three was the Rip Van Winkle caper. This one was, I don't think this was one that ever made an impression on me in the beginning, but there's a couple of things that I really like about this episode. So the story, as it basically goes, is uh, these these four guys pull off a, a heist, and they I think they hijack a, uh, a truck that's filled with gold. They go into the hills where they have these four, I guess, hyperbaric chambers, and they decide to get into these chambers and they're going to sleep for like a hundred years and then they're going to wake up. And at that point, nobody's going to be looking for them any longer. Right. So the hundred years passes by whatever the time frame is. And I think it is a hundred years. And one of the guys is dead, a rocket fallen on the chamber. So at this point, the guy, uh, you know, he, he dies. I guess the oxygen is released, whatever. The other three awaken and. There's obviously issues between them, and the kicker of this is that the last guy alive has all this gold, but he doesn't know what to do with it, so somebody comes by him, and he says, if you can just give me some water. He's been out in the desert. He's dying. If he doesn't get water, he's going to die, and he says, I'll give you a gold bar just for a sip of water, and they laugh at him and say, who is this guy? Apparently, at this stage... Gold was worth nothing, and water was worth everything. And he had what was essentially millions of dollars of gold. So I love the idea that there's this great twist. And, of course, the Twilight Zone is known for having great twists at the end. But you've got two actors in here that, to me fall into this Jack Klugman character. One is Simon Oakland. He plays DeCruz, who is kind of this bad guy. Uh, and Simon Oakland, I mean, if you know him from Kolchak or any, like, Quinn Martin production of the 1970s, the guy was on every TV show at one point or another. Great actor. And then you've got this guy named Oscar Beregi. And I, I'm sure I'm butchering that last name, but he's a guy, uh, and he's got, got a, a bit of an accent, what an actor this guy was. And again, one of the strong points of The Twilight Zone, John, which I think you would agree, was the acting. The acting was really solid, almost on every single episode. And this guy, Oscar Beregi, who plays Farwell, he is the leader of these four guys. This guy is just, you know, and I've never done the research on him, but, you know, it, he had to have been classically trained. He's just phenomenal. So big thumbs up on this one for me. He was phenomenal in Death's Head Revisited as well. I mean, he really yes. stood out. I agree with yes. you there. Yeah, um, I mean, the, once again, so many great episodes. I think that one was like my number 30-something, but it was really good. My number three 
was and when the sky was opened and what a great twist at the end it's about two astronauts that come back to earth after a space mission and one of them seemingly goes crazy he's like where is the third astronaut and everyone's telling him no it was a two-man crew well he eventually gets, I don't know, did he get killed at the end, Barry, or did he get put away? No, he disappeared. What? And then the... Yeah. Right. Yeah, he disappears, and then the next day, the first astronaut is like, where's my friend? And they're, and they're like, this was a one-man space expedition. They show him a, new, a newspaper, and he's screaming up and down, no, where's my friend, the second astronaut? And it was just such a great twist. Yeah, and that so that was something, and I, there was a, a couple of episodes like that. So Rod Serling was really big on doing this whole thing where is this taking place in your imagination or is this happening in front of you? So there were a few episodes that were like that. You know, if, have you ever read some of his writings? So, you know, taking out the television show, uh, but surely? even like some of the the short stories. And a lot of it, I think, were written by Doug Matheson, you know, and uh, th- he had a lot of writers that were science fiction writers. But Rod Serling's writings were just phenomenal. But there are common themes in a lot of his writings. And a lot of it is, you know, is did this happen or is this taking place in your head? And granted, I think every TV show does this now. Mr. Robot, if you remember, Mr. Robot did that in the first season. Again, 50 years later, right? 55 years later. Before Rod Serling, I don't think anybody had ever done that before. No, I, I don't. And my number one is actually very similar to my number three. I never really thought about that. But who? what was your number two, Barry? So my number two is, and this is a tough one, and I got to say, my my number one is static, right, John? It'll always be there. I'll never change my number one. But my number two is like my number one and a half. That's how much I love it. It's called Third from the Sun. And there is so much about this that I like. First off, I love the story about this one, but the acting, Fritz Weaver who was also in another episode of Twilight Zone, Fritz Weaver, who just died the last couple of years ago. I think he was 90. This guy is, he was a national treasure, and he was so underappreciated, I feel, as an actor. But when you watch this, you realize you're watching greatness. That's how good Fritz Weaver was. The second was the direction of this episode. There is a scene here where Fritz Weaver is talking to his best friend and they're they're plotting out what they're going to do and they shot the conversation between the two of them underneath a glass table looking up. And I feel that this was the best directed of all the Twilight Zone episodes. And again, the acting, uh, you know, I could say this with every episode, right? And I have. I think I've said it with every episode. The acting is always off the charts. Fritz Weaver elevates this to another level. The storyline is great because it's essentially a couple of guys that are plotting on stealing uh, a rocket to escape, to leave, because they believe that uh, that where they live is going to be destroyed. Turns out the twist at the end, spoiler alert, the twist at the end, they're actually traveling to Earth. They live on another planet. And I just, I never saw that coming combined with what I think is, if, you, if you've never paid attention, John, to the direction of this episode, 
I would recommend going back and rewatching it because the camera angles here completely different than Rod usually usually used. So this is my number two by far. As soon as you said the name of the episode, I put myself on mute and I typed in the word table on my notes. That was just, I mean, it was such a crazy thing back in the 50s or 60s, whenever they had that, to have that angle of them shooting through the glass table. It was amazing. That was the first episode of The Twilight Zone I had ever seen. I didn't know what I was watching, but I just got hooked by the storyline. And wow, this is on at 1130 every night on Channel 38, and it's summertime and I can watch it. it. It was my first. Yeah, it's uh, that. That is funny that you did put in table too, and it makes me wonder why more episodes weren't shot this way. I do know some of the live episodes that they did. There was the one with Art Carney where he played Santa Claus. That was actually a live episode, and the direction there was interesting. It certainly wasn't uh, you know as elaborate for Third from the Sun, but again, it, there's this foresight of understanding what works and what doesn't work. And I would put this episode up against any episode from any TV show in the history of television. That's how much I think of this episode. You know, you mentioned the live shoots. I, you know, at the time I'm growing up, I don't understand, you know, that, okay, well, they're doing it this differently. Whenever they had those, I always said to myself, why does it look like a play? Because it it looked way different than the yeah. other ones, and after I get to after I bought the book, I'm like, oh, okay, I understand now. I I can't think of one of the live episodes that I liked. I, I didn't I don't per, didn't particularly like any of them to be honest with you. I don't think I did either. And it's we were talking about the hour long episodes as we uh, as we started this subject, and there's a couple that I like of the hour long. I, I do think the formula was the you know twenty three minute episodes, whatever the time length was. I'd never liked comedy. The hour long episodes, with the exception of maybe three, I never thought were great. And the live episodes, I have to. I don't think there was one that I really liked that much. I remember staying up late at night to watch The Twilight Zone in 90 or 91, and it was Friday night, and I'm watching this, and I didn't know the one-hour episodes existed, and I'm looking, and I'm like, okay, it's 12.35, why is this still going on? And I finally figured out that there were new Twilight Zone episodes out there for me. I couldn't believe it, and I was very happy. But at the end of the day, I agree with you that these were meant to be half an hour long, not an hour long. I agree that maybe there were three or four good hour-long episodes. On Thursday, we leave for home is in my top ten. But, yeah, that was just the wrong format. And actually, you know which one I really like? The one with Robert Duvall, where he falls in love with the doll. I wasn't crazy about that one. Oh, I like that one. I, I was very touched by, and I think partly, again, it's, I go back to the acting. I think I was very touched by Robert Duvall's acting and the way that he fell in love with this doll in the dollhouse. I just thought there was really something special to that. We were talking about this Agree book. He did not like one of my favorite hour-long episodes, which was Death Ship. And again, Jack Klugman knocking it out of the park with his acting. Yeah, so I'm not a, uh, I'm not a really big fan of that episode either, too. 
yeah, I don't even have much to say on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I never connected. There are certain episodes, you know, yeah, like when we talk about my favorite episode, you know, it, it's actually, again, it's it's something that I hold very close to my heart. But at the same time, that episode, you know, yeah, that, that one I never, I was never a fan of. Well, you know what? This is like the Zakree book. I mean, I'm, I, I was actually happy that his views on the episodes didn't mirror mine. And I'm glad yours don't mirror mine. And let's see what you think of my number two. Number 12 looks just like you. It's about a girl who is not particularly pretty. And in this world, in this futuristic world, they give you... Uh, not even a makeover. You've got 12 uh, looks to choose from, and the girls pick, okay, I want to be number two, I want to be number nine, and everyone looks the same. And we talk, you, know, you were talking about earlier, you know, Rod Serling seeing the future. This really kind of did turn into the future. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it, that's a good episode, too. And what I liked about that episode was – there is zero predictability, in my opinion, with this episode. I had no idea where any of this was going, where they were going to go with this. And again, I'll say it again, the acting. The acting was really strong. And it really does come down to it. comes down to the acting and the writing. And uh, I've always felt... It's kind of like when I talk about The Big Lebowski, and God knows I talk about this. As Sweet Lou will tell you, I do talk about The Big Lebowski way too much. But... The storyline of The Big Lebowski, to me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. To me, the whole movie is the relationship between the two main characters, which are the dude and Walter. That, to me, they could do anything. I don't, you know, they could go to a theme park and eat hot dogs, and I would watch it because I love the relationship between the two. I think you see that in this movie because I like some of the relationships, I'm sorry, of this episode. I like some of the relationships of this episode. Okay, that that perfectly makes sense. Barry, I am now again, we have not had any episodes, you know, like oh, my number 4 is your number 2. I am dying to know what your number 1 is because it it could be like one out of like 50. It really could, and again, if you, you know, there's so many that I like. This one this one will remain number 1 to me. It's kind of like my favorite movie of all time, Repo Man. It, nothing's ever going to knock it off of its list, and I won't let anything ever knock it off of its list, right? Can I guess? Yes. I'm going to guess The Hunt. So I love The Hunt. I love The Hunt. I love the ending, and I love the relationship with the dog, because I'm a dog guy, right? It's yep. not The Hunt, but I do love The Hunt. The Hunt would be in my top ten. Absolutely. Okay. So it's walking distance. And That's a good one. I got to tell you, much like Third from the Sun, where I would say you could put this up against anything, whether it's TV, movies, I don't give a shit, you could do it. This is such a heartfelt episode. And essentially, it's a guy, car breaks down, and he walks into town, and it's the town where he grew up. He hadn't been back 20 or 30 years. And when he walks into town, it's like the same town where he grew up. And... He's confused by it, obviously, and he meets a little boy, and the little boy played by Ronnie Howard, and the little boy is him. And there is a scene where he starts to chase the little boy. The little boy, his leg gets caught, I think it's underneath the carousel, and his leg is broken, and coincidentally, the main character, who's played by Gig Young, he walks with a limp because it was him. And there's a scene that takes place... A little later in this episode, 
where the father of the little boy, who was also the main character's father, right, explains to him that he's got to go back, that he can't be there because it's the little boy's time. It's his time. It is such a beautiful, beautiful scene. There is nothing about this that doesn't work. And every time I watch this, John, I get choked up and my my ears start, my ears, my eyes start to well up with tears. It is that powerful to me, I think. And, you know, you can always see these themes. My dad was a great dad. And I, I tried to be the best dad that I can to my kids. So whenever there's an episode that usually involves fathers and sons in some form, you know, or movies, whatever it is, I'm usually very attracted to it. But I've watched this episode and I probably watch it once a month, maybe once every two months. And, uh, and now that we're talking about it, I can guarantee it's on my radar for tonight. It is so powerful and so important to me on every single level. Well, if you are like Barry and you'd like to watch it tonight, I know The Twilight Zone is available, at least some episodes, on YouTube. It's available on Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon Prime. So if we have talked you into checking the show out, it's fairly easy to check out. And Barry, I agree, that conversation where he's talking to his dad only he is 30 years older or whatever it is i mean that is a head spinning scene and you know just the dad giving him the good dad advice you you know this is his time you've got to go back yeah Yeah, it really is john and it's uh you know and i will check it out and i the good news i do have hulu and netflix and i can check it out but i i will go back and watch it and it's it's such a beautiful and gig young was so the right guy for this gig young a guy that was disconnected from his family his parents you know just had no desire he was a businessman caught up in this hustle and bustle and then he gets back to this small town where he realizes this was the best time of my life this is when i was truly the most happy and even the conversation he has with Ronnie Howard and Ronnie Howard, I'm assuming this was right around the Opie time, the beginning. Ronnie Howard's really young here. Even that brief conversation is really impactful. But that scene where he talks with his dad, I'll always have the ultimate respect for the fact that somebody could write something like that and write something as beautiful as that. And that you would have two actors being able to pull it off as brilliantly as gig young and and the other actor did it was i I believe that one's in my top 20 and again i agree with you it is an outstanding episode my number one is a little bit similar to number three where the main character seems completely out of touch and completely crazy and as the episode goes on, there's more and more evidence that what he's saying is true. The episode is called Shadow Play. It uh, stars Dennis Hopper. Oh. He is in jail on death row, and he's telling everyone, no, you can't kill me because I am having a dream. And if you kill me, you're going to kill this world and yourselves. And, I mean, the, the very ending of it where they electrocute him. 
and he, you know, is once again back asleep, and the guy who used to be his jailmate is now the judge in court. The guy who used to be the uh, the reporter is now his lawyer, and it, it just wow! It, it blew my mind. It was fantastic. Yeah. So again, common themes with a lot of these, and the thing that I keep saying, the acting. I mean, you're not going to find better acting, at, at you know, especially during that era. You're not going to find any better acting. The writing is off the chart. And then the twists, the twists that occur throughout the episode and at the very end. I would put this easily in my top ten. And I think because I haven't seen this one in a while. You know, the funny thing is, John, I, I, I don't know if you do have Hulu or Netflix or, you know, but it's almost by default. There's two shows that if I have nothing else to do, if I maybe I'm going to sleep and I just want to turn the TV on and fall asleep, it's either going to be Twilight Zone or Cheers, right? So this is one that I haven't seen in a while. I think tonight, I think this is going to be on my television. This is going to be required viewing for my night. <laughs> that is excellent. And you know what? I really hope, first of all, I hope everyone enjoyed the wrestling part of the show. But if I can get one person, or Barry and I, if we can change one person's life and get them turned on to this show that they just never were interested in seeing or maybe never had heard of, I mean, believe me, you are in for about... Uh, I don't know how many hours of spectacular entertainment, close to 100. But, Barry, I want to thank you for coming on. Once again, it has been too long, and I'm not going to wait another year and a half to have you back. I hope so. I, I got to tell you, and I was talking with Sweet Lou as we took a, uh, a bathroom break in between segments, and I said, I got to tell you, I, had, I just had a blast. I love being on. We, uh, we had such a great connection in, in the conversations we had, whether it was wrestling or Twilight Zone. So I don't know if I'm going to be as popular as some of the other guest hosts you've had, John. But with that, you asked me back in a heartbeat. I'm always back here with you, man, if you need me. Well, thank you. I mean, you are on vacation and you took the time to do this, so I double appreciate it. I want to thank everyone for listening. Yeah, I, we're number 29, man, and I'm proud of it. And once it, we'll have another show out for you next week. I want to thank my producer, Lou Kippelman. Let's not forget about that guy who makes this show sound good. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. This concludes our podcast day. 